0: I'm Lisa Dale Miller. You're about to hear a Dharma talk I gave on August 8, 2017 at IMSB in Mountain View, California. I was asked to come and give a talk as part of their series titled Living Wisely in the World. And I chose to discuss the skillful means of recognizing empty appearance. That means it was my job to not only elucidate the various teachings on emptiness from the three main schools of Buddhism, but also to talk about how to apply the teachings on emptiness in our daily lives. So I hope you enjoy this talk. You seem to be in the middle of a really cool series of talks. I get the great joy of doing the hard thing, I think, which is talking about what the Buddha actually meant when he taught about wisdom. Because it's very challenging, uh, especially for modern people. So that's why I'm talking about how to recognize and be skillful with the nature of the way things actually are, which means empty appearance. So we're going to go for the Buddhist jugular tonight, (laughs) we're not going to mess around here. So let's get on the same page. Uh, What in the world does this woman mean when she says emptiness and empty appearance? So I imagine many of you have had teachings on emptiness, how many of you have had teachings on emptiness? Okay, good. Wonderful thing about Buddhism is it's been around for 2600 years, and there are many schools of Buddhism, and therefore that means there are many interpretations of emptiness. So, um, I feel like it's my responsibility to impart here um, some of the main points of the main teachings on emptiness, so that when you leave here tonight, you, if you don't know what Buddhism means by emptiness, or if you have some idea from before, you will have a much more broad understanding of what we actually mean. So that you can skillfully recognize the empty appearance of all experience, internal and external, and know how to work with it. Okay? So let's of course start with Theravada Buddhism um, and the Buddha's original teachings. On emptiness, you can say it as sunyata if you say it in Pali, or you can say it as shinyata if you are using the Sanskrit term. And the Buddha was pretty specific about emptiness, but it meant several things for him. Sometimes when he talked about emptiness, he was talking about anatta or anatman, which is the lack of a permanent separate self, which, of course, um, atman was big at that time in India, so the Buddha didn't really see that there could be such a thing as a permanently existing self. So he used emptiness to describe his teachings on not-self, He also used it to describe the outcome conceptually of where you end up if you determine that this sort of self that we think exists is actually what he called agglomeration of five aggregates, thoughts, feelings, perceptions, um, consciousness itself. And then volition, motivation, all these things come together and they create something that looks, feels, and smells like this real self thing inside of you, but there is no self thing inside of you. Trust me, even no science tells you there's, the self doesn't exist anywhere in the brain specifically. Um, It's just a continually emergent, shifting, changing process that has the appearance of looking separate and solid, but it isn't. So it's empty appearance. In the Mahasunyata Sutta, which is contained in the Majjhima Nikaya, for those of you who want to look it up online, um, it's Majjhima Nikaya 122. And it's a very long discourse on emptiness, but it boils down to this. The Buddha exemplified emptiness as one, a meditative state within which one can discern the presence or absence of disturbance in the mind. That was the definition he used for emptiness the capacity to use awareness to discern when the mind is agitated or disturbed in some way, and what is the nature of that agitation. The second definition in this sutta for emptiness is the interdependent co-arising of all internal and external phenomena, including the apparent self. In any given moment, all phenomena is arising simultaneously and existing Um, in a co-arising fashion, there is no separation. The third definition of emptiness is a type of awareness that gives rise to awakening. Now notice, the Buddha has distinguished between the conceptual awareness that can discern when the mind is disturbed from what the Buddha called the unconditioned, deathless mind of the tathagata, of awakening. So this is very interesting. So emptiness is a progression. First, emptiness is the capacity to observe, to discern the inner arising of phenomena inside of oneself. And to do this very simple thing, instead of saying, I'm so angry, to recognize, ah, Anger is here. This is the difference between attachment and non-attachment, between distortion and recognition of emptiness. Anger is an internal experience that I am having right now. It is here, but that is not all I am. Anger happens to be arising. Pretty much emotions last 10 seconds, so 10 seconds from now, anger will no longer be here. There will be something else, and that is the empty nature of phenomena, especially internal phenomena. It comes and goes really fast. People are suffering from emotion. More often than not, they are not suffering from emotion. They are suffering from aversion to emotion or clinging to emotion. They're not suffering from the emotion itself. Emotion comes and goes very fast. What sticks around and hurts and is so awful is I don't like this emotion that's going to come, therefore I am going to tighten up, I'm going to fight against it, I'm going to resist it. That is someone who's not recognizing emptiness. They are not recognizing the empty appearance of their anger or sadness or joy or whatever it is because, you know, it's just going to come and go. And it isn't them inherently. It is an experience that is arising in the field of awareness. This is why later schools of Buddhism are so fond of asking the question, who are you? What is this? Because, as you will see, emptiness starts to expand. In the Mahayana, which is the next main school of Buddhism, shunyata or emptiness refers to the precept that all things are empty of intrinsic existence and nature. Later schools in the Mahayana, emptiness referred to Buddha nature, this deathless awareness that is beyond all phenomena that might arise in the fields, that innate luminosity of mind. And that, of course, was, is still a very big deal in the Dzogchen and Mahamudra teachings. So the Mahayana concept of emptiness began with the Prajnaparamita Sutra. How many of you know about the Prajnaparamita Sutra? Yeah. Well, the Prajnaparamita Sutras are pretty profound, actually. And they are well worth reading, even if you are a Theravada practitioner and you don't think that... There are any Buddhist teachings other than the teachings in the Pali Canon. The great thing about their view of emptiness is they didn't think that being an Arhat was enough, because according to the Buddhist teachings, the five aggregates actually remain. So they have some solidity to them. And the mahayanas they were like, well, everything is empty of inherent existence, so how can everything boil down to five aggregates? Even the aggregates are empty of inherent existence. In the Project Sutra, just to give you a taste of what their distillation of emptiness was, Subhuti says this. One of the bodhisattvas at this gathering asks how a bodhisattva should go forth into what they call perfected wisdom. And perfected wisdom is this full-on recognition of emptiness and everything. Nothing has any inherent existence. So Subhuti says this. Since I neither find nor apprehend nor see a dharma bodhisattva nor a perfect wisdom, what bodhisattva shall I instruct? In what perfect wisdom? And yet... If, when this is pointed out, a bodhisattva does not despair or despond, if the bodhisattva does not turn away when I say this, if the bodhisattva is not terrified or frightened by what I have just said, it is just this bodhisattva, this great being, who should be instructed in perfect wisdom. When the bodhisattva thus stands firm, so should that bodhisattva train themselves that they do not pride themselves on the thought of enlightenment. This is critical for emptiness in the Mahayana. That thought is no thought since it is essential, transparent nature. That thought is transparently luminous. The Mahayana scriptures are saying you have to pay attention when your self-cherishing shows up, even around enlightenment. If you think there's such a thing as enlightenment, you're still clinging to some kind of solidity that doesn't actually exist. Everything, including enlightenment, is inherently devoid of separateness, of solidity, of something inherently existing. So this is one of the main ways that in the Mahayana tradition, especially in the Lajon training, that you can learn how to recognize emptiness in your daily life. You go and you look and you see where you're clinging to notions of self that are somehow distorted. And it's a very profound way to practice, to be continually looking and seeing, am I clinging to some kind of distortion about myself, some narrative I have, some way that is twisting my notion of who I actually am in this world and is causing suffering because I am clinging to some self-idea that is actually inaccurate. So this is the heart of the Mahayana teachings. Besides compassion, this is the other heart, this is the wisdom heart of the Mahayana teachings. Now the Mahayana also had the joy of Nagarjuna's teachings. How many of you have read some of Nagarjuna's work? Not so many. <coughs> would you recommend they read some of Nagarjuna? Yes. And why would you recommend that? Uh, I'd like uh, bachelor's verses from the here? Yes. It, uh, Shakes up one's perceptions of what is and it, is it? Exactly. Yes. You know, Nagarjuna is known as the second Buddha. Nagarjuna was very much a Theravada, believe it or not. But he, you know, basically did this beautiful bridge. He allowed the Theravada teachings to move into a sort of um, analytical frame that was a little more open and a little more expressive of where the thrust of Buddhism was moving during the you know, the time when Nagarjuna lived. Um, so I, I highly recommend that you read some of Nagarjuna's writings. The great thing about having written a textbook is, you know, I have a lot of this already written in such a wonderfully Hearable way, (laughs) but it makes it easy for me. Yes, well, it makes it easy for you too. Yeah, you don't have to hear me stumble over these things. Uh, Nagarjuna was very, very attentive to emptiness, and because his method was extremely analytical, it was in line with the Buddha's method, which was also very analytical. And Nagarjuna like the Buddha, adamantly rejected eternalism and nihilism. What was that second word? Nihilism. Oh, OK. Yeah. So eternalism was the more colloquial uh, teachings of the time of Atman and Brahman, that there was this self that was beyond and eternal, or like a soul actually. So that is the eternalist view. And the nihilist view is sometimes how people misunderstand Buddhism. They think Buddhism is nihilistic. Uh, Everything is suffering. Nothing really exists. That's actually a misunderstanding. And that's when you end up in nihilism, saying there's nothing. Sometimes you may have heard emptiness equated with nothingness, right? Nothingness doesn't mean nothing, that's nihilism. Nothingness means everything is included. Nothing is left out. And Nagarjuna's arguments for emptiness rested on two principles. One, that things or selves in the world appear nominally. Water bottle. That is a nominal representation of what this is. There's a label for this water bottle, but what is this water bottle made of? Just popcorn out. What is this made of? Plastic. plastic. Okay, and what's plastic made of? For organic molecules. Okay, and where do the fuels come from? <laughs> quartz and leptons. Exactly, but where do quartz and what, uh, ultimately what are quartz and leptons? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So these are the nominal parts that together, when they're viewed as a whole, we put a label on it and say water bottle. This is empty. This water bottle is empty of any inherent existence as a water bottle because this water bottle is all of those other things that it can be broken down into that turn into a water bottle. And so are you. You think you're a self, right? Well, I've already told you there is no actual self floating around in your mind. There's no homunculus in there, right? So then you would say, well, I'm a body. And I would say, you're right, you're a body. So then I would say, what's your body made of? We can do the same thing. What's your body made of? You want to go right for that? So the body is a living system. Living systems are made up of other living systems right? that coordinate and come together and emerge into something else. As a matter of fact, the grossest thing you could possibly say about your body is that uh, I have a dear friend who's an immunologist, and um, her specialty is the microbiome, actually. And Mm -hmm. basically, I think she told me 73% of you is actually bacteria. (laughs) <laughs> and that's not even you. They're actually living off you. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're right. off of emptiness. Okay. This is emptiness. Knowing things as they actually are, not getting stuck in some nominal label. Nagarjuna was very big on this. Okay. Because labels, they can collapse your sense of what something is. This is, for instance, very colloquial stereotyping. I think. Maybe it's next week you're going to do cultural. You'll be talking a lot about this, right? Oh, they look like this, they must be that. Oh, their name is this, they must be that. Yeah. Very, very poverty-stricken way to go through life. Okay, so that's, that's the first principle. The second principle is because of impermanence, interdependence, and insubstantiality, all entities lack any essential nature. That's emptiness. So that's what's known as Madhyamaka. Many schools of thought arose out of the Mahayana. And one of the last schools was the Chittamatra school, which was mind only. And they basically took emptiness to this place, which actually is true neurobiologically. Every moment that you are perceiving, your mind is constructing your reality. What you are seeing, doesn't actually exist like that, it doesn't look like that. I don't look like this. But in order for us to walk around in human bodies and navigate this human body, our brain is wired up to construct me to look like this so you can actually hear me, see me, relate to me. But this is all appearance. I don't actually look like this ultimately, even conventionally. The brain is continually Adding information visually to complete things, so the brain doesn't actually have to see. You know, it's like I know what a folding chair looks like. I've seen a folding chair a thousand times, so my brain doesn't actually want to look at the folding chair. It just has in one of the six layers of my prefrontal cortex, it has the image of that chair, so it just calls up the chair, so I don't really have to look at it. So it constructs the room itself. And that's why mindfulness is so great, right? Because mostly the brain's lazy; it's constructing reality for you. When you're really mindful, you know you're actually looking. The brain's like, "Oh man, I don't want to work this hard. What are you doing?" It's good to be in your reality the way it is, instead of relying on the habitual constructions your mind is always bringing up. But this is the way we're wired up, so don't feel bad about it. It's just good incentive to practice. That's all. And so. Yogacara school said, the mind is not permanent, you can't just say everything is mine. So they didn't like the Chichamata school. So what they did was they decided to be a little more sophisticated in the way they constructed. And they came up with a construction of consciousness that looks a little more like our construction of consciousness. They actually had an unconscious like Freud's unconscious, they actually had that. And they recognized that the mind was inventing. So they were very clear that the percepts were inventions of mind, but they were unwilling to say that mind itself, the inventor of the percepts, was the an inherently, solidly, separately existing thing that created all things. That's almost like making mind Hotman, right? No different. So they didn't like that. And so what they did was they said, well, you know, all phenomena have three natures. And these natures are interdependently existing and we experience them simultaneously and they allow us to experience things as we perceive them but based on whether or not you are really accurately perceiving your experience, you might be only experiencing one of these natures. So I'm going to give you the three natures. So the first nature is the constructive nature. Then that includes, according to Yogacara School, all language-based appropriation, all concepts, any concept, water bottle, Uh, Any concept you might have about anything you experience is part of the constructive nature. And all of these are assigned after you cognize. So cognition occurs, and there is a way in which your brain is receiving what is coming through the five senses as it is, but very, very shortly after it's received, even in the body, concepts are already happening. And your conception of what you're experiencing based on your history, your DNA, based on all kinds of things, is twisting it into concepts about things, not the actual things. That happens very quickly. And so that's the constructed nature. And that's the very thing at the deepest core level that creates our subject-object dualism. The feeling of there's self inside and the world outside and they don't come together. They are separate. So that's endemic in the psyche. It's very, very deep. And by the way, that's the source of pretty much all human suffering. That one aspect is the source of most primordial ignorance. The second nature is the dependent nature. And so that's this ever shifting stream of interconnected, compounded, internal and external objects on which all language-based constructions act. Uh, I can see that all things arise interdependently. So now you're not lost in your total delusion of concepts. Now you have those, but you recognize that all of that is interdependently constructed. So you have some wisdom, you have some awakening, you're starting to see things the way they are. And then there's the third nature, and the third nature is what they call the perfected nature. And that's when you realize awakening, or what the Buddha ultimately called suchness, and that is This is a term shared by all schools of Buddhism, suchness, and what it designates is enlightened perception or what is known as, in direct translation of suchness, the way things truly are. And the perfected nature is the complete absence in the independent nature of conceptualized nature. So what that means is, when you have the perfected view of the way things are, You're no longer clinging to the concepts as something real. You recognize they exist. So one of my teachers, Zoni Rinpoche, has a, a great mantra, which I love, real but not true. Okay. So the conceptual nature exists. We label things. We see things as separate. We experience them this way. That's real. It happens. It isn't true. It's not the essential nature of things. And so, the interdependent nature of things, when we were meditating and it was laughing happening and clapping and I was inviting you to actually allow yourself to open to that, I was asking you to recognize the empty nature of the concepts you might have been having about the clapping and the laughing that the clapping and the laughing could ever get in the way of your meditation is a distorted concept. It can't. Because it's phenomena. Phenomena doesn't get in the way of knowing things as they are. It is the cause of knowing things as they are. This is why we say suffering is the cause of awakening. When you recognize your suffering, you awaken. You're either diluted or you're undiluted. Walking through the world, recognizing the empty appearance, means you are unwilling to go to sleep in any moment. You're unwilling to rest on your habit mind, on on the mind that is lost in some kind of distortion about the way things are. The truth is self-cherishing is a very excellent way to see whether or not you're lost in distortion. And this is a term that's not used in the Theravada teachings at all, but it is a very important part of the Mahayana and the Vajrayana teachings. It's at the core. It's can you recognize when you are putting yourself in the middle of all things that are occurring and you are falsely thinking that the world needs you in order to exist. It doesn't. (laughs) <laughs> I know, I'm such a disappointment <laughs> and that's because the self is so ubiquitously stupid it perceives itself as something it's not it's not the master controller but for those of you who are old enough to remember the Wizard of Oz remember the last scene or almost toward the end I guess it's not really the last one because she has to go home, right? You know, but it's the one where they're so afraid to meet the, the wizard, right? And you know, this is, they're up in front of the hologram, that hideous thing, and it's smoke's going, and it's green and huge, and it, just, it looks so horrible, right? It's just awful, and they're all cowering. And then all of a sudden, something happens to it. And then they go behind the shell, and they open a door, and there's this putsy little man, (laughs) right? And he says, I'm the wizard. And then he lets them know the truth. And by the way, there is no wizard. And that's the self. The self is the wizard, and there is no wizard. So self-cherishing is a very beautiful method. And we all engage in self-cherishing. All of us. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a really great quick story about, about myself. When um, I finished graduate school and I went to my first internship, I had the joy of being snatched up by the chief psychologist at my site, and. I don't know why, but for some reason, he wanted me to be in his uh, group and also be my individual supervisor. And I think he was like in his early 70s at the time. And very early on in my individual weekly meetings with him, um, I was interning. Part of my hours was at Mountain View High School at this point. And I had a very difficult case with like a... 15 year old or something like that and I remember I'm telling him about this kid and all the things I'm going to do and blah 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 and he looks at me and he goes, do you actually think you're indispensable? <laughs> <laughs> and I I was shocked and I realized that I was holding on to this distorted notion that somehow I was the only person that could help this kid oh. and by the way I had actually reported there. This kid's parents to CBS. So <coughs> the parents didn't want me anywhere near this child protective services. This parent the parents didn't want me anywhere near the kid, and somehow I was convinced that I was the only one who could help this kid. Self-cherishing. It was a complete distortion. Because of course that wasn't true. So there's many, many forms of self-cherishing. The best way for you to Uh, learn more about how I'm applying this clinically and to also see the Buddhist teachings on it. I wrote an academic chapter in a textbook, somebody else's textbook, on this. If you go to my website, you can actually, I uploaded it for free on academia.edu, so you can download it for free. And the title is The Ultimate Rx, Coming Through the Delusion of Self-Cherishing. So essentially what you want to be doing is you want to be looking for two extremes. Buddhism is really big at pointing out the extremes, right? One extreme is a sense of entitlement or specialness that you believe sets you apart from all other human beings. And of course, it's a spectrum, right? And our culture is very big and everybody's special, right? In our essential nature, we are human beings, we are all equal. There is nothing intrinsically special about any of us. However, Intrinsically, we are all equally deserving of care, respect, and compassion. But it doesn't make us any more special than anyone else. And you don't need specialness in order to know your true nature. The other extreme, so of course the extreme of that is narcissism, entitlement, right? All those things. At the other extreme, I am completely broken. There is nothing worthy about me. That is the other extreme. This is equally, completely destroyed and false. Because there is nobody that's completely broken. There's mass human suffering, there are extremes of suffering, there are people who on both of these extremes who visit incredible violence upon other human beings and upon themselves. But the truth is, nobody's inherently broken. Because at our core, at the most essential place, we are all one thing. We are a luminous knowing. And it is untainted. It is neither good nor bad. It is just this innate capacity to know clearly. This is the perfected nature. So the capacity to wake up experience that perfected knowing, that capacity, is available to you in any moment. So there is no entitlement and there is no brokenness. They are existing as distortions in human minds and they are powerful, right? Think of the people you know in your life who, all bad things, they put themselves in the center of it. Even if it has nothing to do with them, that's the self-charging. So You can look for this in your life. When somebody comes into your life and visits upon you something really painful, human life is full of pains and joys. You can't get away from it, yeah? When someone does this, you have two choices. You can get completely lost in your own distortions about how awful they are and how wounded you are. That can be all of who you are. Some people take it to the extreme, this is what their entire life is built on. They take this on as an identity. It's distortion because truth means something happened that was deeply difficult and painful. And I don't have to either agree that that was okay, nor do I have to reject it as something that will make it impossible for me to show up in my life the way I wish to show up. And that is a view that is a wise and compassionate view. That is recognizing that I am more than what occurs. These things inform who I am choosing to be, but I am always free to make a choice about who I want to be. That's emptiness. So in fact, emptiness is a way to be able to do what I invited you to do at the beginning of of the meditation, which is to drop into an intention in any moment for who you actually want to be. Do you want all of your pain to precede you in every choice you make? Do you want all of your joy to precede you in every choice you make? Or do you want clarity and a deep compassion and resilience and openness to precede you in the choices you make? That is living wisely with empty appearance. Not getting lost in habits, not getting lost in assumptions. Being willing to make your brain work, (laughs) to make your heart work, to really question all of your assumptions, all of your nominal labels. So that's emptiness. It's kind of rich, isn't it? Yes? So I think that the kind of grade school idea of emptiness would maybe be the most common. Colloquial notion of emptiness; it means nothingness. It's you know, if you have an empty box, there's nothing inside it, kind of thing. So, from what you're describing in your talk, that the Buddhist notions of emptiness um, are more complex than the very kind of materialist idea of. Object, no object. Yeah. So if you, a good way to look at it would be climate change. So if you were to use the global notion, you would say, there is no such thing as climate change. If you were to use the wise way of viewing climate change, you would say, that the organism that is our planet is responding to conditions and causes that are not actually being caused by the planet, but are being caused by something that resides on the planet (laughs) that is actually having a profound impact. This is interdependence, okay? But you could say, again, if you're gonna get lost in the colloquial view, You could say, humans have to fix this because the Earth is too stupid to fix itself. And that would be wrong because, in fact, humans are going to have to partner with the Earth in order to allow this system, this interdependent system, to figure out how to deal with this and to make whatever shift is going to happen happen in a way that will be as least harming as possible for everything on this planet. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Is that a good way to explain this? Yes. -hmm. Wouldn't you say that we are partners with the Earth we could either be good or bad partners? So we don't even think of ourselves as partners right now. Aren't we part of the Earth? There are many people that do not see the Earth as having any capacity whatsoever. They only view human beings as the only intelligent, capable objects on this planet. That's a distorted view. That's not an empty, interdependent view. We have been very bad partners because we have not recognized the organismic wisdom of this planet or the other beings on this planet. Would you agree? Yes, I think you're agreeing with me. I am totally <laughs> agreeing with you, <him>. yes, <laughs> completely. So the way I've been thinking of emptiness is this, namely that, uh, uh, in a way, there is a self, because... Yeah, real, it's real but not true. I'm not the same as you. Are the same as anyone else here, so there are distinctions. In what way are you not the same as me? We're not talking oneness, By the way, uh, I probably go to bed later than you. Or, you know, uh, I spend my free time differently. So, so, I, so I would say that there are distinctions between people, but mm-hmm. each, but myself, and each one of us, is also changing in a billion different ways every second. So there's no permanency to the self. No way to define it. No way that you can put your finger on it. There's no actuality to it whatsoever. It is empty appearance. It's a big shell. It's virtual reality. Okay, It has no inherent nature of any kind whether or not you or I, we are conventionally not the same person, right? It's impossible for us to be the same person, correct? Right. But these, as an organism, we cannot be the same person. Right? Sure. But our organism is not the self. Okay, so you and I cannot be the same person. We are in agreement. But we are exactly the same because neither of us have any inherent existing self inside of us. It's an illusion that we both experience because we are human creatures, and human creatures posit a self, because that's how we're wired up, is to posit a self. We are positing something that has no existence on any level. This doesn't have an existence. Inherently, okay. But conventionally, it's a water bottle. I'm holding it, right? It must exist because I'm holding it. There's no self to hold on to. We, there is no existing self. It's a big illusion. This water bottle is more real than myself because I can hold this. I can't hold, I can't find a self. It's changing less rapidly than before. It doesn't exist. I can find neural activity, I can find chemical reactivity in my brain, I can find thoughts, I can find feelings, I can find things, but I cannot find anything that equals the self that I'm experiencing right now is up here talking to you, okay? That thing feels real, but it has no inherent reality. But it sure feels real. And that's why the brain is the ultimate virtual reality machine. It's constantly shifting reality. If I had a hologram here of me, would you say the hologram is real? There's some, there's some phenomena. Exactly. That's real. But if I told you that a hologram is me, you would say, no, it's not. It's a hologram of you. Right. That's the self. The self feels real. We think it's real, but it's just constructed entity that is entity less. Pretty awesome, huh? Constructed entity that is wholly entity less. So where do babies come from? <laughs> <laughs> well we're human beings, right? They're, a baby is not a self. A baby is a is a being that isn't a being being that didn't exist and still doesn't exist. It came from an egg and a sperm coming together. Where do you think it came from? An egg yeah. and a sperm have, so this is, your nihilism. You are not in That's emptiness. Exactly. That's, That's a, exactly a problem. problem. You're in nihilism. Yes. You're not in emptiness. Yes. Nihilism does not mean, nihilism means nothing exists. I'm not saying nothing exists. I am telling you, it's real, but it has no inherent, separate existence. It has no truth as a separately existing entity, okay? Nothing does. But conventionally, things exist. So Buddhism is not about eternalism or nihilism. It's about wisdom, knowing things as they actually are. So thank you. That was a perfect way to end.